needed if you're not there already. <laughs> I wasn't looking. <laughs> Psalm 42, and believe it or not, 43. As I was reading through this, I just kept reading and I noticed that verse 5 of chapter 43 was the same way 42 ended in verse 11. And so I thought, man, these like like they go together. And I didn't realize, you know, just looking at for the first time, I didn't really think about just reading through it, just, you know. And then reading a couple commentaries, I found out that most people, that some people believe they were just one and the same at, at some point in time. And so like you, the first stanza and the second stanza, right? <laughs> kind of tied together and you'll kind of see that. So I want to go through these. Um, I think it's David, and well, we don't know for sure, but I assume it's David. Who else would it be, right? <laughs> uh, who describes such, with detail, the inner emotions and feelings that he has of what's going on on the inside. He's able to articulate that and put it in a picture form for us so we just let, can relate to and it resonates with us. And so I want to go through these two. I mean, there's a lot we could probably dive deeper but I chose not to go too deep I want to encourage you to read through these uh, uh, this psalm on your own and be blessed with it it's just such a blessing uh, especially when you're going through the ringer <laughs> in trials and then usually it, it resonates even a little bit more right <laughs> but I also want to talk about the tabernacle because he talks about the tabernacle here and I want to put you in the same frame of mind that a Jewish person would have had, David would have had. And uh, probably not the patriarchs since they didn't have the tabernacle, but you'll get the drift when we get there. So in uh, Psalm 42, um, we see his expression in his yearning for God. And that is, we often say in, in our culture that there's this void in our lives. There's this you know, that empty spot in our heart that only God can fill. Well, the Hebrews would just say it th this way. There's just a thirsting for God, a yearning for God. And so he he was a, a shepherd, obviously. He was an outdoorsman. He was used to hunting wildlife for survival. And so the deer is the animal that he chooses to reveal what he's sensing on the inside is his his need for God. You know, you think about every living creature must have water. And what happens if you don't have water? You get dehydrated. You get confused. Uh, that usually sets in. You get very tired. Uh, without water, you can die. And so it's a picture of people without God. They suffer. You know, you'll, you'll see through this, these psalms, the, David is exhausted He's exhausted by life experience. He's worn down. You know, the deer comes to the river. It comes to the body of water to be refreshed. There's, there's exhaustion usually involved in it. There's great need. Without that water, the deer would die. Without God in our lives, we die. We exhaust ourselves rather quickly without his presence. So there's, this is how he describes it. So let's read here. 
And I'm just going to read through both psalms, and we'll uh, comment through it then. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they continually say to me, Where's your God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. Where I used to go with the multitude, I went with them to the house of God. And with the voice of joy and praise, and with the multitude that kept the pilgrim feast. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. For the help of his countenance, O my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from the hill of Mizar. Deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. And in the night his song shall be with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with the breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Vindicate me, O God. Plead my cause against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. For you are the God of my strength. Why do you cast me off? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? O send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, to your tabernacle. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God of my exceeding joy. And the harp, and on the harp I will praise you, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. So you can see the repetition here uh, of some of the verses, and you musicians would sort of get that repetition in our, you know, the stanzas and all. And, you know, obviously in these first five verses of 42, he's, ta- he's, he's describing his longing for God. You know, and until we come to the Lord, we don't really know what we're missing. We don't know what's mi- when we, we don't know what we're missing and we don't know uh, who we're missing. We just don't uh, comprehend it all. But he describes that inner need with thirst, with the panting for God. And, and then just the inner conviction of knowing that he's going to, at some point in time, appear before God. I mean, I don't think there's a human being that walks upon the face of the earth that doesn't have that inner conviction because we, we know, even before we came to God, we, we knew something innately. It's just there. We just denied it. We didn't want to deal with it. We, you know, stiff-armed it. <laughs> mentally speaking. <laughs> and even now, we think that 
I think, you know, what's it going to be like when I see God for the first time? You know, I think there's that verse in, I think it's Psalm 115, precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of his saints. And I wonder if it's, from God's perspective, the look on the face of his loved loved child, seeing him for the first time. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Well, what what what's so precious about the agony and the pain they went through? I doubt that. <laughs> it's the it's the entrance into heaven itself, seeing the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for the very first time, experiencing God like that. And God's that's God thinks that's cool, <laughs> and I think it will be a wonderful thing when we appear before God. I think David's exhausted. Now, if this truly is David who wrote this, I mean, we don't know. A contemplation of the sons of Korah, you know, this is obviously was something that they could have embellished, but it's almost like he's, it's, if David did write this after in his latter years as he uh, was recollecting and reflecting upon his life, think of, his situation before Saul, the the ungodly nation, the deceitful and unjust man. There was a lot of corruption in Israel at that time because they had a poor leader. They had an Amalekite type person, right? A man after the flesh, a man who was self-indulged and self-centered as Saul was. It led to corruption with in his 40 years in his poor leadership. And so he's, I think of the crowd that followed him out of loyalty because, you know, if you don't follow the king off with your head, you know, so you're going to give allegiance just because he's in that position. And how, what attitude the unbelievers that followed him in his army and his acquaintances would have had towards David and some of the things that they would have been saying about him. To me, it kind of fits. It's a possibility anyway. And so um, it's probably hard for us to, to relate like that unless you're the only Christian in your workplace and you get persecuted because you they know where you stand i remember all the nasty things that were said about me from you know communion breath you know all kinds of nasty things just mocking you know which i was sort of proud of that one actually but i mean go ahead i'm fine with that one you know it's just other things we can't mention but um you can imagine working around a hundred other construction workers that didn't know the Lord very well or hated God even. And I didn't, I wasn't shy about my witness and would call them out on certain things when needed, not too often, but I wasn't shy when I, even in my younger age. And so there's that, that you know, persecution that arises and David, you know, look at his, look at the things that he's mentioning in his life experience here. He's suffering. He's suffering in his relationships. Nobody likes it. Those are some because when you suffer in relationship, it it, it touches almost every emotion that we, you have. You know, and I, you know, the sadness. You know, he there's just, he's breaking down. I remember it working at that place for it was only a year and a half, but I ended up having almost getting an ulcer. I had to go to the doctor. I was having stomach issues, you know, because I was internalizing so much. You know, you can't just pound people every time you turn around for them persecuting you. That's not much of a witness, you know. <laughs> so I just, you know, the anger and, the, you know, the, the pain of rejection, the things that you experience, the sadness. So I internalized it. 
And um, so I can relate to this, you know, mistreatment, if you were. And I wasn't a perfect man by any sense. I probably earned a few of those stripes, you know, uh, in in that sense. But they were taunting him. Uh, there we see. Um, that's kind of mentioned there. Um, I, I would gather that from the oppression there that he mentions in these two, especially in 43. Uh, again, the persecution, the hostile reaction from uh, them. And really, it's because of their own condemnation, you know. And so much of this is a perspective that I learned through some of those trials in my twenties, uh, working at that place. It wasn't so much me, you know. I didn't figure it out until near the end of the of the, my time there. Um, it wasn't me; it was the Lord. They were convicted; they were under conviction because what I stood for and who I stood with. And so it's really easy when you're being persecuted and people are saying things about you because of your faith, not because you do something stupid, but because of your faith and who you represent, to take it personal. When in reality, it's like like the Lord said to Samuel, look, these people have asked for a king. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. This isn't about you, Sammy. I mean, come on. This This is their attitude towards me. I want to be their king. And so this is how we have to, you know, kind of get out of the way. You know, it's, it's not all about you, you know. It's not all about me. It's just the way we are. We personalize it. But it's, again, it's who we stand with. And then he, he again, he he probably is thinking about the times as a young lad and, and going up to the feast. You know, you would have the Passover celebrated. You You would have... You know, the Feast of Pentecost there in May. And then in the latter, there were at least three of the feasts that they were, the, the men of Israel were required to come to annually. So he would, the family, Jesse and his family and his sons would have all gone up there. You know, he makes the pilgrimage, you know, he mentions that in verse 4, the, the pilgrim feast. So he's got the tabernacle. He's got that relationship with God around this facility, if you will. And the people of God, the multitude that would gather during that time, those are burned into his memory and he's 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 thinking through his relationship with God because what is the whole thing about the tabernacle what is there's a, we're going to mention this a little bit later God's intent one he wants to be right in the center they had the tribes you know in the wilderness they had the tribes all around north south east west but right where was the tabernacle right in the middle and that's where God wants to be, right in the center of our lives. And and so David, you know, so you are, you know, God. He's crying out through some of I, you are the center of my life, but where are you? <laughs> in fact, my enemies are telling me that. And so he turns to prayer, as we should. He asks the question that sometimes we think, is restricted among believers. Like we think it's like some spiritual faux pas to ask God why. I don't think the Lord gets upset with that. You you may not get the answer (laughs) that you're looking for when you say why God and then you spell out whatever the issue is. But he's not offended by that. I don't think the Lord's offended by any of our emotional responses or the hurts and the pains that we bring to him he's like he understands just like our children when they come all emotionally 
bent on a shape and hurting and whatever's going on that's brought this emotional turmoil. We don't send them away. We don't shun them. We just, hold on, hold on, settle down, get a grip, tell me what's going on. I, why, why wouldn't our Heavenly Father be even more so than compassionate than we are with our own children? And so I, I think it's important to, you know, if you're a parent, it's really a lot easier to do that. Uh, but if you watch children and you work with children, and you know those things happen. So you, you, you just, adults have that compassion for little people. You know, and then there are those who I think who are hard-hearted, <laughs> who just, who just want to say, look, just accept the cards that were dealt to you, and it's just the way it is. And you know that's that's the way. If it was meant to be, it was going to be. You know, I just I just want to throw that out the window and never hear it or see it again. The great God fate. Let's just submit to the great God fate. I don't know if I've never met him. I don't think I want to. I don't think he exists. I think it's a lie. Well, that's just whatever's meant to be is going to be. Not necessarily. There is reaping and sowing, and there's consequences to our choices. I, I'm not, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube sometimes. I get that. But not everything is set and etched in stone. I have choice. I make choices. I can determine my destiny. My words and my choices are powerful. Very powerful. And we get lied to an awful lot about our destiny and about our purpose and about our plans. Notice he mentions here, and allow me to spiritualize a little bit here, when he says uh, in verse 6, I will remember you, he's talking to the Lord in his prayer, from the land of Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, and from the hill of Mizar. Now, Now, we know that Hermon was to the north, extreme north, and actually it was the gates to the underworld. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. That's what Jesus said. He is standing on, literally, at the base of that mountain, he, what is known at that time, the gates to the underworld. And in, in reality, I agree with Dr. Heiser, he is provoking the underworld, the demonic spiritual realm, come on boys, Within a week from that moment, Jesus will be on the cross. I think he provoked them. The Pharisees were his, they were the tools to Satan to put him on the cross. So what is he, and then we see the land of Jordan. What is the land of Jordan? What's the promised land? So if we look at the highs and the lows of life and enjoying the promises of God, the blessings of God, but then there are sometimes we're just absolutely in the pits. We get ripped off by this world. There's There's the, you know, what looks like a mountaintop experience in glory, you know, Mount Hermon, in reality, it's, it's, the, it's the, the best that the world has to offer. It doesn't compare to the promises of God. And I think he's reminiscing upon that from a geographical point of view. Disquieted within. I mean, look at these emotions. I mean, they're just sadness, the taunting, the persecution. Tears, disquieted, you know, in 43, oppressed, depressed. I mean, I mean, you know, do you feel that it's wrong in your relationship with God to tell him how you're feeling? If you really 
think that that's wrong, read the Psalms a little more. (laughs) David held nothing back. Just, here I am. It's like he's ripping the mask off like, this is who I am and I don't like it. I don't want to be this way. Where are you? Please help me. I mean, he's just everything. Ever had those moments? (laughs) If you haven't, you will. (laughs) In your journey, we know the destiny. We don't understand how the journey is going to be, but we're going to have those experiences and it's okay. And one of the deep things in verse 1 of 43, one of the deep things that's so important in in a human heart is a sense of justice. Vindicate me, O God. Judge me. Look, this situation I am in, it's not right what Saul's bringing to my door here. This, I, I, wait, I was just out taking care of the sheep. He's the one that brought me in to play the, you know, the guitar and drive the demons away. You know, I just was taking supplies to my brothers when I took Goliath out. I didn't ask for this. Why is he chasing me? I mean, put yourself in David's shoes, you know. Deliver me from the deceitful, the insincere, and the ungodly, the unjust. Those who live outside the fear of God. They have no fear of God. This is, I mean, everyone, when when you're wronged or misrepresentative, wants to be vindicated. That's just a natural thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just when you try to do it yourself, that's probably not the best thing to do. (laughs) Just let God fight that one, right? I love that verse. I sometimes wish he would do it quicker so I could get him a little more satisfaction out of it maybe, but vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Now, if, I mean, you know, think about that. Vengeance is mine, okay? That means I take my hands off. I will repay. Is God a liar? No, he's going to, everybody, you realize he's messing, when he's messing with you or me, he's messing with one of his children. And if you mess with one of God's children, you bet you're going to be in big trouble. You're going to be in hot water (laughs) or worse. Notice what David, again, comes back. He comes back. He doesn't give up what he knows about God for the uncertainty of the situation that he's in. And And that's, you understand that that is the strategy of the enemy. He tries to get us to forget God, to turn our backs on God, and to become offended by God. If God really loved you, then none of this would be going on in your life. And he actually shortchanged you. See, because they're all going to burn. He, Satan would love to have us turn our backs on God and forsake him and burn with him. But as you reflect upon your relationship with God, he is, as David says there in verse 2, you are the God of my strength. My strength comes from God. Notice the other things that are important in that. Verse 3, your light and your truth. See, that's where the strength that you and I need, and God is the source of that. Through light, enlightenment. We don't know what's going on, but God can show us. He doesn't put a premium on ignorance. What does James tell us? If any of us, going through trials, if any of us lack wisdom, yes, we do lack wisdom when we're going through trials. What's going on here? If any of them lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally. That's light. God will give us light. 
truth. It's always truth. And what does it do? I love this. It's real simple. It's laid right on top of the, right on top here. This is low, low hanging fruit, right? Let them lead me. With with God's enlightenment and truth, we get direction. We know. Okay, we're going to get a perspective. I know that these guys that are persecuting me, I know that they're just as lost as I was. I know that God's going to deal with them. I'd like to help him out, but I'll get, unless I'll let that go and let him deal with them, and he did. <laughs> I've shared this story before. I'll, just real quick. There's this one guy in particular that really had it out for me, and I have no idea. I think he was trying to impress these other guys. <laughs> so we had this job that was about an hour away from um, our home base, and he was a welder. And so we were going to, this is a commercial uh, firm, and we were doing commercial work. And <laughs> we get, so we drive to the thing, and you know we've got various vehicles, and, and it's like a small army on this particular project. And so we get there, and, uh, and he just gave me, had just given me the business when we were at the shop, you know. And I just got in one of the trucks and was just waiting and took the trip, right? And so we get there, and we all, we're all pulling out. And one of the guys, I didn't have to say anything, but when he got out, he realized that he had forgot to hook up the welder to his pickup and drag it with him. So he got to the job with no welder. And I, I just turned away, and I just had this biggest smile on my face. <laughs> Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. If he wouldn't have been so in such a big rush to make life miserable for me to start my day, he probably wouldn't have forgot his Walter. So I thought I thought about how God took care of that. Has he ever done that to you? For you? <laughs> then verse 4, again, David knew where to go and how to get there. Your altar. Let me, at the end of verse 3, let them bring me to your holy hill to your tabernacle, and I will go to the altar of God. That's where it's all at right there. That's why we come on Wednesday nights. We don't come because, I don't come here because you're here, although I do come here because you, I assume somebody's going to show up, right? But in reality, Kathy and I have determined it doesn't matter if nobody comes. We've come to minister to the Lord. He is worthy to be, and that's my role as a child of God and to, is to perform my priestly duties, to worship the Lord. That's why I come on Wednesday nights as well as Sunday mornings. I want to minister unto the Lord because he's worthy. And David, there's a, and, and, and there's a reception. Not, when you give yourself to the Lord, you're blessed it just because of who he is. That's not why we do it. It's just the result of being in his presence. You're encouraged, you're strengthened, you're blessed. Joy, that's what he's talking about there. There's joy and praising. And then it's like at the end there, verse 5, it's almost like he's reminding himself, why are you cast down on my soul? Yeah, really, what's wrong? Straighten up. Like, yeah, why am I cast down? (laughs) Like, really? I'm letting that get me down when I'm serving God? I mean, sometimes it's good to reflect upon after you, like, okay, let's just, Sunday mornings, you come in and you, it's, you're a train wreck, right? Or midweek, you're a train wreck. 
you come in, you get lifted up, it's probably good to think what you felt like before you got here. You ever done that before? Like, yeah, like, wow, I'm kind of glad I came, you know, <laughs> type of thing. Anyway, so I want to end this, and I want to talk about, I love this, and I'm, I'm going to kind of hold on here because I'm going to kind of go through this fairly rapidly. But it's the picture of and the typologies uh, in the tabernacle, which would give us the advantage looking back at what was symbolic there. And I just, I just love the symbols. I love the types, the pictures, the lessons, the object lessons that are there. And that's that's really why the Hebrew. I think why the Lord chose the Hebrew language because it's a picture language, and um, it creates. Something within our minds that 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 sticks with us, and so um, it's the tabernacle is full of symbolism. Everything in it's got a, uh, a picture or a type, a lesson for us. There's a, probably a, a picture and a story of Jesus there. I lo, I come in the volume of the book. It's written of me, so we can see Jesus there. So uh, it, it, and it's what's really neat is it actually gives us a, a little glimpse of the throne room what the throne room in heaven is like. You ever thought about that? We wonder, wow, I wonder what heaven's going to be like. Well, we read Revelation and there's a rainbow, there's a throne, there's an altar, there's a, uh, little things that are uh, miniature, miniature in this tabernacle of what's in heaven. Um, and of course, as mentioned before, one of the main things is that where it was located within the camp was dead center. If you looked at that, you can almost, from an aerial view, you have, in the center, you have a cross. Tribe, 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 and then the tabernacle, the cross. It's kind of interesting. Um, But I think you have to go inside to learn the lessons, right? So there's three things that are important about the layout, which most of us are familiar with this. You have the outer court, the inner court, which is known as the holy place, and then you had uh, the holy of holies. And there's how many gates? How many gates into the tabernacle? Anybody want to take a shot at that? One. That's right. And what did uh, Jesus say about himself? I am the door. So you want to get in the tabernacle, you got to go through one gate. You want to get into heaven, you got to go through the door. The gate, the door, is the Lord Jesus Christ. John fourteen six. So the first thing you would see when you came through the door would be the brazen altar. And that's uh, Exodus 27, 1 and 2. And the altar is obviously full of spiritual meaning for us. It was made out of acacia wood covered with brass. So the wood would represent humanity, the frailty of wood compared to other things. But covered with brass, brass we know is a type of judgment. And so... Humanity and the judgment for sin uh, seems to be indicated here. But we also see the what was provided for that altar was an innocent lamb. And so the altar is actually a picture of Christ on the cross. And then if you look at some of the offerings, they were uh, cut and disassembled and the parts were washed. And then they were reassembled on the altar, as, uh, and then they were sacrificed. And so when you look at that dis, 
jointed sacrifice. You think about what happened on the cross when Jesus died. You know, his joints, this, the, the pain of being suspended for six hours and the loss of fluid, the dehydration, the exhaustion, the having to, to lift yourself up uh, off the little pedum there, the little seat, just to breathe constantly. Eventually, his bones, his shoulder would have been dislocated. So you have this dislocation of his bones there, probably, and his shoulders especially. Uh, so you see this offering, and it's disassembled, and it's grotesque. It's gross. Not what it intended to be, but this is, again, the picture of Christ on the cross. The next thing you'd see in that area would be the labor uh, this is something uh, that the priests would <clears throat> wash their hands and their feet before they would come into the presence of the Lord into the next area, which is the holy of uh, place. So this is again, you know, as we and we probably all this, all of us do this to some degree when we come to church. You know, we're sitting here, and hopefully we learn to do it before we come into the building. But we we start confessing our sins. Confession is made. We start applying the blood before we come to church because we, we, if you're going to come into the Lord's presence, the holy place, into the holy of holies eventually, it's because you've, you've, you've applied the blood. You know, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, right? And to cleanse us for all, from all unrighteousness. So there's that. It, we are eternally clean, yes, positionally. Yes, we are all justified, I understand that. But experientially, I must apply the the blood daily and sometimes moment by moment when I am not in the spirit and I realize the flesh is getting the upper hand. I need to, to get that right. So there's that idea of, of washing ourselves through the water of the word. That's why we preach getting in the word. is such a cleansing effect of the word. So after the atonement was made for our sin by the blood, you know, we laid hands on the, the animal transferred our sins onto that animal at that point in time. The blood was caught, spilled, sprinkled, and then the burning would take place. And then I'm now ceremonially clean. I'm acceptable to the Lord. I've, de- I've made a covering for my sin that's been taken away. And this is, um, now there's a, you know, think about the priest. For him, he's going to go a step further once a year and go into the holy place. Could you imagine the adrenaline flow? If I don't do this right and I go into the holy place, I'm dead. So we're talking about the holiness of God. So let's look at the furniture in the holy place. Uh, the golden lampstand, the table and the showbread, and the golden altar of incense. So when we think about, again, think about the pictures here. The courtyard, things were made of wood covered with brass. Now we go into the holy place behind the you know, curtain there, the first part. And those pieces of furniture were made of wood, but they were covered with gold. So we've got judgment for sin, but here they're covered with gold. That's divine riches. Divinity. You're getting the presence, the best. And the articles, obviously, in the courtyard were for cleansing. That's the idea in the outer court, is cleansing, making yourself... Dealing with the defilement. God wants us to be clean before him. 
but the articles in the holy place are for power. Power that we need to live there. So inside that golden lamp stand, um, it's the six branches, one in the middle, um, making the seventh. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I've come into, uh, as a light into the world, he who believes me would not stay in darkness. So there's typology there all over the place. I am the vine, you are the branches. I mean, it's just, you can see the oneness that is in, involved with that. So the lampstand typifies Christ, but what's the oil? The oil is the Holy Spirit. And that's what was, uh, it's the burning, bringing the light uh, into that dark area. Uh, the power of presence comes through the oil and the presence of the Holy Spirit. So from a place of weakness and defilement to a place of now in the presence of God, there filled with the Holy Spirit, receiving the power to live morally and excellently before the Lord, I think. The power to influence others to live holy lives. You know, you think about, I've never had a blood transfusion. It's kind of crazy. I'm almost 62 years old and I, I still have, don't know for sure what my blood type is. <laughs> oh, that's sinful, right? No. <laughs> but you know, if you get a blood transfusion, it, you know, you, it, it's life-saving, right? I mean, that's why we get those, uh, apparently. Um, but receiving the Holy Spirit is like a blood transfusion. It's, it's like, apparently, that really it's a real pickup, right? <laughs> Let's put it that. <laughs> then there's the table of showbread. And Jesus said, he's what? The bread of life. Man doesn't live by bread alone. Give us this day our what? Daily bread. You get the idea. And then the altar of incense, which represents prayer. The altar was as close as you can get to God in the in the Holy of Holies. That altar of incense, prayer. Prayer is the closest way for you and I to get to God right now. That's why prayer is such an important part of a person's life. And why do you think the enemy tries to keep us from praying? Because he knows it's his, it defeats him. Nothing undercuts and destroys the strongholds that are in this world, in people's lives, than prayer. Prayer is the greatest weapon. The Word of God, you, you take a Christian that's filled with the Holy Spirit, in the Word of God praying, the devils run. They flee. They can't handle it. That ought to provoke you a little bit. <laughs> and so the morning and the evening, what would they do? They would burn incense. It was constant burning of the incense there. Presence of the Lord. So finishing up here, you think about it, the tabernacle. So you, had, you initially had the uh, tent of meeting that Moses was in when he had the face-to-face -face friendship relationship with, with the angel of the Lord or a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, he would sit with Moses there and he essentially dictated, okay, this is this is the law. Remember, he wrote, and the Lord spoke unto Moses, and the Lord spoke unto Moses. Remember, we went through all that in Exodus and Leviticus. He's right there in front of him. This is what this is the deal. And he he gets it down and he then Moses goes out and teaches the people. So he had the tent of meeting, then they finished constructing the tabernacle. 
And then what happened after that in Israel's history? Solomon built the temple. And then what happened next of great significance? We had the incarnation of Christ. And then now we have a bunch of little Christ, little sons of God. We are the temple of God now, the church, right? So what's in, well, there's still one more to come, the tabernacle in heaven. So we're all going. We're all going to that one. We're going to be in him, one in him. Beautiful stories, uh, picture there. So if you look at it this way, the outer courts are body, the inner courts are mind, and the holy, most holy places are heart. And so you see the, the anatomy and, and the breakdown there. Christ lives in us. We're the lamp stand incense. We're the bread. We're, we are the altar of incense. Can't wait to see that. And that's Revelation 21, by the way. I'm going to read this and I'll close with this. Revelation 21, one last tabernacle. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more longer any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these things are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the springs of water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God. And he will be my son. Isn't that great? Isn't that awesome? You've got a great future coming. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Bless our prayer time now, Lord, as we take time to just lift one another up and the things you put upon our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name.